This week on the show, resellers are facing fee increases from every imaginable angle, and I continue to prove that you can make a living selling books. What is up, Galaxians? Welcome to episode number 216 of the Galaxy CD's Rocks and Flips Reseller Talk podcast. My name is Ryan, and I will be your host as we go through a very depressing <laughs> uh, reselling news update this week. There are uh, fee increases galore coming your way, many of them kind of from unexpected sources and with some unexpected impacts, and we're going to go over all of that. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the things that have sold here over the last two weeks, uh, since it's been a couple of weeks since I did an episode. So with that having been said, let's just dive right into this messy, messy reselling news. News updates. So uh, online merchants and marketplace sellers are going to face higher costs as Visa and MasterCard plan fee increases. So major credit card networks, Visa and MasterCard, are planning to increase the fees that retailers and marketplace sellers pay when accepting credit card payments from customers. This according to a report in the Wall Street Journal, citing people familiar with the matter. This article appeared on uh, eSeller 365. And of course, as always, I will link to all of these sources in the show notes and the video description down below. Uh, the fee hikes are scheduled to take effect in both October and in April, so they're coming in two waves and will largely impact online purchases made by consumers using Visa and MasterCard credit cards. According to estimates by consulting firm CMSPI, the increases could cost merchants an additional $502 million per year in credit card processing fees. Roughly half of the added costs will come from the higher network fees collected directly by MasterCard and Visa. The remainder will stem from increases in what's known as interchange fees or swipe fees, which are those that are paid to the bank that issued the customer's card originally. While these fees are largely invisible to consumers, they've been a major point of contention between merchants and card networks uh, for many, many years. Last year, U.S. merchants and marketplace sellers paid a record 167 billion dollars in processing fees to accept 10.589 trillion dollars in payments from credit debit and prepaid cards according to the nielsen report uh, many struggling merchants of course contend that these pending increases couldn't come at a worse time with high inflation and interest rates still impacting businesses working to recover from the pandemic U.S. Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin from Illinois and the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and U.S. Senator Roger Marshall, uh, a doctor from Kansas, are lead sponsors of an act called the Credit Card Competition Act, and they agree with the merchants. The news solidifies that it's time to pass our bipartisan, bicameral legislation, the Credit Card Competition Act, to enhance competition between credit card networks and ultimately lower costs for businesses and consumers. We need to bring real competition to the credit card industry. Our bill ensures they say that the Visa MasterCard duopoly ends their price gouging tactics that disproportionately hurt American families and small businesses. They have tried to intervene on this before with no success. Um, previous efforts have failed and letters that have been sent to these firms by government officials appear to have fallen on deaf ears. So how does this impact you as a marketplace seller? The fee hikes could hit individuals who depend on popular marketplaces like eBay and Etsy to reach their consumers. In recent years, these sites have transitioned to processing payments in-house, which of course has been met with some controversy as well, uh, with some incorporating them actually directly into their selling fees. That means the higher card fees could directly lower revenues for the mom-and-pop sellers that make up much of these platforms' user base. While marketplace sellers may hope that platforms opt to absorb some of the cost increases, history says otherwise sellers should expect increases in selling commissions or other payment-related charges if Visa and MasterCard have their way. So just be aware this is coming up. There are no real details about how much the fee increase as a percentage of what it currently is is going to be. I would expect it's probably not a lot, but it, 
every little bit, as you see, as we go through the next several articles, which all revolve around fee increases of some sort, that stuff starts to pile up after a while. And especially if it gets passed on by the platforms, which, as this article says, and would be my belief, history would say that that is something that's probably going to be happening. So it's supposed to happen sometime next month. I don't know. There's been no indication that I can find that any of the platforms, eBay, Etsy, Mercari, any of them have made immediate plans to make increases, but I would imagine you'll probably see adjustments in the not-too-distant future. So just be aware that that is coming. Uh, fee increases from MasterCard and Visa. eBay uh, is changing how they collect shipping costs from sellers. This actually may be beneficial in the end. Uh, eBay will begin charging sellers for UPS and FedEx labels at the time of printing. Beginning later this month, it informed sellers this week. Previously, it had charged sellers after delivery, which had caused a lot of drama because for some reason, eBay in particular was notorious for giving a, a what they considered to be an estimated rate. And when the bill ultimately went through, particularly from FedEx, it seemed like, the bill was significantly higher than what the estimate was by eBay. So with this, hopefully these fees will be accurate and there will be no further surcharges. The, the, the fees will be done right. Um, I guess time will tell <laughs> uh, whether that is the case or not. Well, one seller did say, I hate getting hammered with two weeks worth of labels on random days. They've been saving them up for weeks sometimes and hitting me with hundreds of dollars worth all in one day. Where did $400 just disappear to? Oh, UPS. Now, my thought process on that is you knew you bought the labels. You knew this charge was coming. So why are you surprised that it ultimately did? I That kind of mismanagement of your money is on you, in my opinion, not on eBay or UPS or anyone else. You knew you bought the labels. You should have budgeted for that to begin with. But I will move on. eBay is simplifying. They said the way we charge for eBay shipping labels, currently shipping cost estimates for FedEx and UPS shipping labels are provided at the time of printing and actual costs are charged after delivery. In the coming weeks, we will begin charging for all shipping labels at the time they are printed. The amount charged is based on the weight and dimensions entered at the time you print your label. That's key. If carrier audited weights and dimensions are different, you may receive a cost adjustment. So as is always the case with shipping, if you put in bogus information, too small of a package, too light of a package or both to try to save a little money, and FedEx or UPS or the United States Postal Service, for their part, happens to weigh the item as it goes through their system and they discover that your information was incorrect, they will come back on you for the additional fees. So uh, make sure you do it correctly. More detailed information is available if you have any questions. Uh, sellers, they say, have long complained about surprise billing when purchasing these labels through eBay as the problem described in a thread that they linked to from back in February. It will be, as I just said, interesting to see if this problem is reduced as a result of this month's change. So I don't use eBay's labels. I ship everything through Pirate Ship. So this is not an issue that I have dealt with for several years since I've been using Pirate Ship. But if you do use eBay's shipping, uh, be aware that there's going to be a change coming there. However... Speaking of shipping, uh, we're going to go through a whole bunch here of uh, adjustments and increases that are coming from pretty much all of the major shippers with one interesting exception at this point. We're going to start with FedEx. They have announced holiday season surcharges and adjusted rates coming in 2024. They've disclosed plans to implement temporary surcharges for the upcoming holiday season and then to hike rates across all of their services for 2024. The FedEx Express rates for U.S. domestic services as well as U.S. export and import services operated under FedEx Express will see an average increase of 5.9%. So it's a pretty hefty increase, almost 6%, though it is slightly lower than previous year's general rate increase. FedEx ground and FedEx home delivery shipping rates will also go up 5.9%. Notably, they say this adjustment extends to FedEx ground economy shipping rates as well. FedEx Freight, which probably doesn't affect a lot of traditional resellers. This is for like the big LTL type, a pallet's worth of stuff. But shipping rates for FedEx Freight shipments will be adjusted in the range of anywhere from 5.9 to 6.9% 6 
contingent upon the customer's specific transportation rate scale. This rate alteration applies to shipments within the U.S., including Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Additionally, it will cover shipments between the contiguous U.S. and Canada. They also announced a couple of other surcharges that will be coming. Customs clearance service fees starting January 1st of 2024. FedEx will be implementing an increase in customs clearance service fees uh, applicable to import operations and additional handling surcharge and oversized charges effective January 15th of next year. FedEx will be revising the fee structure for the additional handling surcharge and the oversized charge for international multi-piece shipments. Instead of a per-shipment charge, these fees will be assessed now per eligible package. So this is going to get potentially a lot more expensive if you ship a lot of stuff. The change uh, specifically affects the additional handling surcharge, which includes considerations related to dimension, weight, packaging, freight, non-stackability, so non-square type packages, uh, as well as the oversized charge. The detailed breakdown of all these rate adjustments, surcharges, and fee revisions will be made available on FedEx's official website. Uh, That probably is out now. It was supposed to go out September 7th. So that's probably available now. So be aware if you ship with FedEx, um, there's going to be a holiday surcharge, as there usually is. And then starting in January, there are going to be some pretty significant rate increases to use FedEx and UPS. (laughs) Uh, Up next, UPS to hike rates 6% in 2024 will nearly double their peak surcharge. Uh, Man, the hits just keep coming. UPS raises rates 6% in 2024. To be exact, it's also 5.9% on December 26th of this year. Uh, This news came about 10 days after FedEx announced their increases. So, uh, yeah. There you go. And like FedEx, UPS at the time of the announcement did not publish specifics, only publishing the overview of the average of the increases. They said they would be producing the details at a later time. The following changes will be effective on December 26th. So those are going to go into effect a little bit earlier. Uh, Previews to come later, they said. Rates for UPS ground, UPS air, and international services increase an average net of 5.9%. They like that number all the way around. The list of zip codes to which area surcharges apply will change. I assume that that means there will be more zip codes that will qualify for a distance surcharge, so be aware of that. Uh, The list of zip codes aligned to certain zones will also change. The impact of these changes on your shipping costs will vary according to your shipping characteristics and the terms of your UPS agreement if you happen to have one. If you use a third-party service, again, like Pirate Ship or eBay Labels, It'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out, but these surcharges are coming. They are also adding a demand surcharge, which will go into effect on October 1st of this year, so just a couple of weeks from now, that runs through January 13th of 2024 for certain domestic and international shipments. An example, domestic peak surcharges like the additional handling surcharge is currently $350 per package. It's going to go all the way up to $690 per package during the holiday season and nearly 100% increase. They got to pay for that new union contract (laughs) Uh, one way or another. And uh, they're going to try to make it back during the holidays by uh, essentially doubling their surcharge fees. So uh, the thing with these is not only if if you're offering free shipping, this is really going to start to get expensive. Uh, If you're doing customer paid shipping, it's not quite so painful because those adjustments and increases will just be passed along to your customer. You'll probably want to reevaluate your pricing to make sure that your your net net pricing is still right, but you're not in as bad a shape. But you get double hit for these, as this article, which is on e-commerce bytes, points out, because you're going to pay more selling fees because virtually every site that I'm aware of calculates your final selling fee based on the total of the transaction, which includes shipping fees. So if you're paying 15% of the total, you're now going to pay 15% of essentially 6% more of shipping fees. So that may not, on an individual sale, amount to all that much money. But over the course of a year, if you're someone that does dozens to hundreds to potentially thousands of transactions every single month and you're paying an additional fee to sell and you're paying more for shipping and potentially your transaction fees are going to go up anyway because of what we just talked about with the credit card fees, 
this could all accumulate into a pretty significant jump in your selling costs. So I don't know. I wish I had some advice on how you could prepare for that. But other than knowing that it's coming, it's really hard to do much about because your your widget, your T-shirt, your book, your CD, your whatever it is you're trying to sell only has so much value in the marketplace. And that value does not change necessarily because your costs of doing business are increasing. So unfortunately, you're you're going to face a situation where you're just going to get squeezed a little bit on your margins. Uh, if anyone has any suggestions on something that you could do to help relieve some of the pressure on your margins from this, uh, feel free to leave them if you're watching on YouTube in the comments down below or to send me an email at galaxycds at gmail.com and I'd be happy to share them in a later episode. But this is again, potentially quite a bit of additional money to be coming out of your pocket. So if you found any of that, uh, despite it being all bad news, <laughs> uh, interesting, helpful, informative, hey, do me a favor if you're, uh, if you're watching on YouTube and hit that thumbs up button. If you're not currently a subscriber to the YouTube channel or a follower of the podcast, you could consider doing that as well. And please share this with other resellers because I haven't really seen anybody talking about this too much online so just help me out with that also one thing to to bring up uh, usps for the last several years has also had a holiday surcharge and to this point they have not made an announcement about an additional charge for the holidays last year that charge actually went into effect on october the 2nd if i remember correctly so we're right into the time frame where that thing would be going active and they have not yet made any announcement about whether there will be one this year. So maybe we're going to luck out with the United States Postal Service, knock wood, that they're not going to have a holiday surcharge or that if they do, given that we're so late into the season already, maybe it will be for a little bit shorter duration than it was previously. I guess time will tell, uh, but so far they have not made an announcement. Uh, UPS announced a new service. I don't know if this is available on eBay. I didn't look. I got this notification from Pirate Ship. Uh, UPS Ground Saver is a new economy ground service designed for low-value, non-urgent shipments that are being shipped to, and this is key, residential addresses. The service is a perfect opportunity to save you more money on domestic shipments that are not time-sensitive, allowing you to keep more loot in your pocket while offering delivery that your customers can count on. UPS Ground Saver also gives you the option to use UPS to ship to P.O. boxes, U.S. territories, and military addresses all over the world. And we'll get into how they do that here in a minute. What are the basics of this service? Here are the main points they say you need to know. It is the most affordable service available from UPS, at least on pirate ship. Now, I will tell you from my own experience, I had a couple of things that I shipped out last week using UPS and this UPS ground saver was less than 70 cents less on a pretty heavy package and it had a slower delivery time by a couple of days. So in my case, it really wasn't worth doing. Your mileage may vary, but be aware of that you'll want to look and compare the two and decide, uh, as they mentioned, if it's not time urgent, maybe it doesn't matter, but if it's at all time sensitive, I don't know that saving the additional money may be worth the potential hit you take from a customer service standpoint. You obviously, you get to run your business in any way you see fit. But for me, in that particular case, the savings was not enough to warrant what I thought was going to be an undue delay to the customer. So be aware of that. If you look to use this service, take a look at how much you actually will save versus what the change in the delivery dates were. Like I said, in my case, it was 70 cents less and I was going to deliver my item two days slower. I opted to just pay for regular UPS ground. Uh, it can be delivered seven days a week, including Saturdays and Sundays. It's specially designed for residential, small and lightweight packages that don't require time sensitive delivery. UPS Ground Saver moves throughout the UPS network and will be delivered by UPS or, importantly, in some cases, will be handed to the local post office for last-mile delivery by USPS. And that is how they're going to be able to do uh, APO and military addresses and the U.S. territories because they will not actually be doing that last-mile address. UPS is not able to deliver to those, but the post office is, so this is an option 
to now be able to use UPS theoretically to send to those types of addresses as well. If you use it, they do say that the label is going to look a bit different from regular labels, especially if the last mile delivery is going to be done by the post office. You'll see your ship from address. You'll see the address from the, a local post office where UPS is actually going to deliver it. You'll see the UPS tracking number for their portion of the journey. Then you will see <laughs> your final recipient's address and a USPS tracking number. So both numbers and both addresses will appear on the label. If you're watching on YouTube, here's a quick example of what that label looks like. Uh, cluttered with information and barcodes. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a messy label if you use. Um, pirate ship, they have tracking right on their site, which is actually really, really good. It's very accurate, so uh, you can just use that. They do note, however, that insurance works differently from normal UPS, and this, again, goes back to the fact that they may not be doing last-mile delivery. The ground saver labels do come with $100 worth of carrier liability insurance, but that only applies to the portion of the journey that UPS is in possession of the item. Once they drop it off to the United States Postal Service, your insurance is no longer valid, and if the post office destroys it, you're out of luck. Uh, Pirate Ship does offer a fairly reasonable rate on insurance separately from the carrier. So if it's something that you think you want to insure for the entire trip, they recommend, of course, that you buy their insurance. Uh, UPS does say they will inspect every package before they hand it off to USPS and they won't tender a package that they see is damaged. In this case, they will mark it return to sender and have it delivered back to you and then you can file the claim or you're up to $100 in insurance. Key limitations of this, no commercial destination. So this cannot be something that you send to a business. If it's sent to a business, it has to go through regular UPS ground. So this is residential addresses only. Pirate Ship does offer this service and will denote automatically if it is eligible to use this service. So if you have any questions and you're using Pirate Ship, you need not worry. They will not offer ground saver if the address comes up in their system as commercial. But they remind you, you can ship to P.O. boxes, military addresses, and U.S. territories, which is something that they have not previously been able to do. Surcharges, they note, may still apply because, of course, they want to make that extra money. So, again, the same kind of non-standard things, uh, a box that's too long, a box that's too big a cube, or a box that is uh, extra length. So be aware of that, but this is a new service that's available that in theory might be a little bit cheaper. Moving over to Amazon, uh, their peak season FBA seller capacity adjustments are coming. They explain how they adjust their capacity for peak shopping season, advising sellers who use their fulfillment services to get their inventory into their warehouses by October 26th in order to be ready for Black Friday. As we do every year during September and October, our fulfillment center teams are focused on the receive processes to ensure that your products are properly placed in the right fulfillment centers. It offers most sellers, they note, higher estimated capacity limits for October. However, most sellers then see lower estimated capacity limits for November and December, where they focus more on processing customer orders than processing your inbound shipments. So if you are an Amazon FBA seller, you want to try to have everything in that you can get into their system by the end of October, essentially. Uh, one way, of course, that Amazon recommends sellers ensure their inventory remains in stock is to use their Amazon warehousing and distribution service so they can replenish their fulfillment centers as needed. So rather than storing the stuff yourself, send it to Amazon's kind of halfway house <laughs> uh, and pay them more fees. Uh, it is less than sending it directly to their fulfillment center, but you're going to pay Amazon to have it stored at their facility, and then you're going to pay again when it goes to the FBA warehouse, so just be aware of that. This is a long-term storage, and accordingly, it is less expensive, they say. It allows sellers to seamlessly replenish their inventory to fulfillment centers, meaning shoppers can continue to buy those products on Amazon even when they go out of stock at the fulfillment centers. So just be aware of that. That is all coming up over the next uh, six weeks or so. A new interesting feature happening over on eBay that I have not personally seen, but uh, a lot of sellers have talked about it, and an eBay buyer experience team member actually finally shared some details on this. It is called a response time 
feature. eBay is displaying how long it takes a seller to respond to customer inquiries. This is something that you see. Uh, I think Mercari does this. Etsy, it's part of their star seller program. So eBay is trialing this with, it sounds like, select buyers because not everybody is seeing it. Uh, they reported last week it took a reader by surprise. Product manager from eBay did explain on a thread on the eBay discussion, discussion boards that they were testing this feature because we heard from buyers that they value knowing if they can expect timely responses from a seller and that it would encourage them to engage more on eBay. They say they are testing it with a subset of buyers to help understand if it helps with increasing sales and trust on the platform. There are some qualifications that you have to meet in order for your that information to appear on your listings. Seller has received at least one question and answered 60% or more of the questions over the preceding 12 months. The only one that counts is the first question and response in each conversation. So if the customer responds to your response and says, hey, thank you, you don't need to respond to that. It's dropped out of the metric. It's only the first question and the first response. The result is rounded up to the nearest bucket of the seven signals that we'll talk about in a minute. The signal is not shown if the calculation shows a seller responds in more than 48 hours. So if your response time is less than 48 hours, it's just not going to show anything in this field. So no one will be the wiser and the buyer will not know whether you respond quickly or slowly if you're more than 48 hours out. The signal is also not displayed when a seller hasn't received any questions over the last 12 months or if your response rate is under 60%. So essentially, if you are a less than diligent responder to customer messages, your signals are going to be so low that your information will not appear to a buyer. I don't frankly know if that's good or bad. <laughs> uh, in theory, I guess if the information appears there, it should reward good sellers, but they're not really punishing less good sellers. I don't want to call anybody a bad seller who just doesn't respond to a lot of messages because we all know we get way more messages sometimes than we can handle, but there's no, it's not going to say this person is slow to respond. This information will just not be displayed at all. Uh, the product manager did deny that eBay had any plans to add response time as a criterion to qualify as a top-rated seller. But as I mentioned, Etsy does this as part of their star seller program. So if I was a betting man, I would say they'll continue to look at this and make decisions in the future about whether this is something that they would want to consider as part of their top seller metrics. According to the post, buyers in the test could see one of seven signals displayed in the seller's listings depending on eBay's calculations. And those are responds within one hour, responds within three hours, six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, or 48 hours. And if it's longer than that, as I said, no signal shows up on your listings. So I don't know, man. I get messages literally every night <laughs> while I'm asleep. So a, a one-hour average or a three-hour average or, frankly, even a six-hour average is probably difficult to hit if you're a, not a, a place with, like, 24-hour customer service people that are monitoring your eBay messages. Um, that's just – to me, that's not realistic. I think if you're responding within six or 12 hours, you're probably doing a fantastic job, and I don't think most people's expectations – on eBay would be for anything less than that, but I'll, I'll be very curious to see if anybody pops up with that one or three hour uh, response time because that's blazingly fast. <laughs> uh, they have over at eBay also rolled out another AI tool that generates product, complete product listings just from a photo, which is really interesting. Um, I have not personally tried this. If you have, you can let me know in the comments down below. Uh, if you've tried it and how it works, eBay is rolling out a new AI tool for marketplace sellers that can generate a product listing from a single photo. It will be available in the eBay app for iOS to start with the Android app to follow in the coming weeks. This tool, they say, can automatically write a title and description based solely on a photo, as well as information including a product release date and suggest a category, subcategory, list price, and even a shipping cost. The tool Builds on eBay's other efforts to inject AI into the selling process, including AI-generated product catalog descriptions and a background remo removal tool for listing photos. The photo-to-listing tool was built internally, and the team will use the listing data generated to train the model going forward. So that, that will be interesting. So that it, as they use it, uh, they will continue to try to train it so that it gets better and better at what it does, which I guess makes sense. 
uh, was built, they say, uh, to reduce friction across the platform and trans the pro- tr- transform the process of listing. With this tool, it makes sellers' job of listing items incredibly painless, easy, and even fun. I uh, I think the article is going to talk about this in a minute. I talked either in the last episode or the episode before that about trying eBay's current AI product description based on the information that I put in. And my experience has been that there is, there is too much needless verbiage in that description. There's also cases where it's not accurate enough. So I'm not convinced yet. And again, I have not used it. So maybe I'm ahead of myself here, but I'm not convinced that this is going to work quite as easily as they said, because I think you're going to really want to go through that listing with a fine-tooth comb to make sure it's correct. And that's if you're a seasoned reseller. This article points out that this tool, however, is designed for what they call the cold start issue for first-time or newer sellers. Not uncommonly, they say, new sellers are overwhelmed by the amount of information they need to enter to create a competitive listing. No kidding. (laughs) Uh, Even seasoned sellers are sometimes overwhelmed by the amount of information that eBay is asking for on listings. I've talked about that before. Some of it is relevant and some of it is not. I'm one of those. If I think a product item specific is irrelevant to the item I'm listing, I just skip it. I don't fill it in with NA or any of that. I just move on with life. Uh, But there is a lot of information. And this tool, they say, is to help these new sellers list items. My issue with that is most new sellers are probably already a little uncomfortable with the what's required to be accurate with the product listing and if they don't edit their listing they're in the in an area where they could potentially have bad information that gets through because they think they can just point their camera at this item, take a picture and list it and move on with life and I don't think it's going to be quite that simple. Uh, they say, what a better way to overcome that than by removing the need to enter info altogether. Again, I'll be very, very shocked if it is that easy and that effective. They say there's no need to work through a cold start with AI. As soon as you're ready to sell, your listing is ready to post. eBay writes in a new blog post, we've been hard at work on the next version of a new magical listing experience, which uses AI to analyze research and extrapolate information from a small amount of data provided by the seller. Uh, other longtime sellers besides myself are a little skeptical with this. The official eBay community forum and subreddits frequented by sellers are filling up with complaints about the poor quality of eBay's description generator, which I just mentioned, which has been available in limited tests with one user on the forum claiming that the text is misleading and in some cases downright untruthful. They pointed to a listing for a Pentax SLR camera, which eBay's AI generated description said the camera came with a lens kit when it did not. So again, you as the seller are ultimately responsible. Uh, eBay is not going to let you off the hook if you use their tool, I'm sure, and create a bad listing and you create a camera listing that says it comes with a lens. You're either going to have to give a price adjustment or take a return and probably negative feedback and on and on and on. So this AI stuff is all grand in theory, but in practice, you still have to be very, very careful. Uh, Another seller wrote that the description generator frequently restates the item specifics and title and then merely adds some fluff, which is kind of what I found to be the case as well. And they do contain, from time to time, mistakes, and they are just overly long. The verbiage is just out of control. It's, It's trying to be a fluffy advertising product description, and I don't I think we would mostly be in agreement that people don't read (laughs) Uh, the product descriptions with much veracity to begin with. So all that extra verbiage just makes a potential buyer probably less likely to read it when what should be one paragraph with three or four sentences turns into three or four paragraphs worth of meaningless gobbledygook. So again, you can let me know in the comments what your opinion of that is. I know a couple of people have reached out and said they really like the AI description tool, but they are doing the the edits afterwards. So they are spending that additional time. In my case, I've stopped using it altogether because I found that it's quicker for me to just do my product descriptions by myself rather than edit three paragraphs worth of eBay's. So uh, there you go. And here, uh, 
As if to confirm that, uh, by the time I got done fixing one of the descriptions and shortening it, I could have written it myself, they said. eBay sellers appear to be taking issue not only with the AI's tendency to spout mistruths and hallucinate. Uh, eBay is well aware of this as the new listing generating tool has a disclaimer warning that the text might not be completely accurate, but with the use cases that eBay envisions for it. So, again, they're already aware that this is not 100%. Sellers point out that the descriptions are not necessarily clear, concise, or direct enough. It tends to be repetitive and verbose, kind of like I am in this segment, (laughs) Uh, even for those basic items. So, cool tool. We'll see how it works out. I, I... I don't have it available yet to me. I may try it for kind of more unusual items just to see what it does. But so far, not uh, not not thinking that's going to be something I would use very often. Last thing here in the news, over on Etsy, they have started a, a pretty attractive new program. This is called um, Share and Save. So essentially what it is, you're going to be given like an affiliate link to your own shop and or to your own listings. And if that listing sells through your referral link, you are going to get a 4% discount off of the order total off of your bill, which is pretty hefty, to be fair. So uh, how it works, you can you can get it on the app, they say. Essentially, um, you include the link, your social media posts, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Pinterest, wherever in your bios. I've already changed mine both on my link tree and on my YouTube uh, descriptions. So it's already in there. We'll see how it works. Share those links. Buyers click and purchase. Buyers click the link rather and make a purchase. You get 4% off the order total off of your bill. So let's say they have it here on the screen. Pretty straightforward. If the order total is $100, and the total transaction fee is $650, you're going to get $4 off, 4% of the total order taken off your fee. So your fee was $650, now it's only $250. So this is pretty attractive. It's only 4%, and I will say, just to be negative, Nancy, for a minute, eBay's off-site ad program, which is essentially the same thing, they they pay themselves (laughs) 15%. Their off-site ad fee is 15%. So when their link generates a sale, they take 15% off of the top of your order in added fees. If your link generates the sale, you save 4%. So they get essentially four times as much for doing basically the same thing. So just be aware of that. Buyers must place their order within 30 days of clicking your link. That, however, is fantastic because with the eBay partner program, and I'm pretty sure with the Amazon affiliate program, that cookie, that link click is only good for 24 hours and then it expires. Etsy is giving a buyer 30 days after they click it and you'll still get the money. So that is pretty spectacular. You will only get refunded for traffic you drive from off of Etsy. So you can't respond to a message to a customer who's already on Etsy within the Etsy messaging system and send them one of these custom links. That won't fly. They will not pay you for that. It is determined off the buyer's last click prior to purchasing. So if they visit your shop from an off-site ad, that order will not be eligible. If they click someone else's share and save and then end up on your listing and buy it, the original person, I suppose, somehow is going to get credit for that or maybe nobody does. So a uh, cool program if you're selling on Etsy. Uh, it literally takes one click to enroll and you'll get the new link for your shop. So if you're on Etsy and you do anything on social media whatsoever, I would recommend giving this thing a shot. So that is going to wrap the reselling news for this week. A ton of stuff going on. Unfortunately, a lot of it is not great news. More more fees, more expenses, just not real pretty. But uh, again, if you're watching on YouTube, let me know in the comments down below what you think of any of that. Now for something a little more fun, uh, let's talk about some stuff that sold here over the last couple of weeks. So I don't actually have a ton of stuff. I have been super, super busy here. If you're following me over on Instagram at Galaxy CDs Rocks, I've posted the last couple of weeks. I've done over 100 listings sold per week, pretty much every week for the last couple of months. Now I see a lot of sellers, as is usually the case, but it seems like it's 
really been magnified over the last month or so. Sellers, especially within the YouTube and the Instagram community, talking about eBay is dead, Etsy is dead, reselling is over, just a lot of negative feeling about what's going on in the reselling world. And meanwhile, I'm over here (laughs) uh, just selling stuff like crazy. August was my best August ever since I've been reselling, and it was my second best month ever total. So my personal experience is very different, and I'm not saying that there aren't people out there that are struggling with sales or with business on the various platforms. That may very well be the case, but I don't personally believe it's reached a point where you could make the argument that any of these platforms individually are dead or that reselling is just over. Are people having to change what they do as the platforms change with things like the Etsy program we just talked about or with eBay's promoted listings? Yes, absolutely. I've talked about it before. If you have been reselling since 1999, the marketplaces have changed. They've changed how they are trying to make their money. And if you're trying to still sell things the way you sold them back in 1999, you may in fact be struggling because some of the things that you used to do that were successful strategies on these platforms are not going to work anymore. If you're not, and again, it's you get to run your business however you choose to do so. But if you're not using some of the new tools, if you're not using promoted listings, which are becoming more and more widespread in their use, you're falling behind other sellers. And that is obviously going to have a negative impact on your business. So Just some food for thought there. I've seen a lot, a lot, a lot of negative. I was actually going to do a whole episode on it, but I just didn't. (laughs) I decided I didn't want to spend all that time going through all these negative YouTube videos and whatnot. Uh, It's just, it is really rough out there with, with pretty high profile sellers commenting that reselling is really, really bad right now. And I just, I'm here to tell you that that is not been my personal experience. Uh, September, we're only, what, 10 days in, uh, but so far September has been fantastic. However, that all having been said, they haven't all been like huge transactions. I've only got maybe nine or 10 things to share today because it's just been a lot of small ticket, like sub $20 stuff, which is usually the case for me. So we've only got a handful of things here that are kind of worth being on the lookout for. This first item, uh, pick this up at an estate sale for a dollar. Cover to cover the message of the Bible. Bible questions answered by a guy named Johnny Ramsey. This is from, I believe, the 1960s. It was a trade paperback. Uh, again, picked up at an estate sale for a dollar. Sold on eBay for twenty four ninety nine plus media mail shipping. For sale over on Etsy. This is a book that I picked up in a big lot, so I'm into this for less than, I think, 16 cents. Denison, the story of an Ohio college. was uh, Denison University is in Granville, Ohio. It was written by uh, G. Wallace Chessman. It was a first edition hardcover. Again, super cheap to me. Part of a big lot. Sold for $29.99 plus, again, media mail shipping over on Etsy. I mentioned over the last few episodes this big, big lot of books that I picked up at an estate sale that dealt with historic film and radio topics. Uh, This is another one of those. The Republic Pictures Checklist features serials and cartoons from 1935 to 1959. Written by Len Martin. It's a hardcover, again, published by McFarland. If you see these books out there anywhere by the publisher McFarland, I would definitely consider grabbing them. Um, most I've there've been a few that have sold for less than twenty dollars, but most of them have been twenty dollars or more. This one I had listed for thirty four ninety nine plus media mail shipping. I got a best offer of thirty dollars. I own it for two whole dollars, so I went ahead and took that deal. A uh, cool old book from nineteen forty three, written about kind of World War II, during the World War II era, Singapore is Silent by George Weller. It was published in 1943 by Harcourt Brace and Company. Hardcover with its dust jacket in really, really nice shape. Uh, Had this listed for $39.99, got an offer of $34. I picked this up at an estate sale for two bucks a couple of weeks ago, so I went ahead and took that offer as well. 
Here's a book that I've had for a little while. This one was not in fantastic condition, uh, but it was fairly rare in a hardcover and with its dust jacket, The Miracle of Mind Power by Dan Custer. This wasn't even a first printing. This is a third printing, but it did have its dust jacket. Dust jacket did have some wear and minor damage, which I showed in the photos and described in the description. So again, always be clear about what kind of condition it is. Uh, but I had this listed for $39.99 or best offer. Another one with an offer of $34 that I went ahead and accepted. Back over to Etsy, The Best of Everything by Rona Jaffe. This was published by Simon & Schuster back in 1958. It's a second printing. So again, it's not even a first printing of a book, which is usually the most valuable. But it's a very, very difficult book to find. Uh, I, I almost never put rare in my product titles because... Almost inevitably, there are multiple ones listed, which leads me to believe it's not really all that rare. <laughs> uh, in this case, I had literally the only one at the time I listed it, so I did put rare in the title. This I picked up at an estate sale for a dollar. This thing sold for $59.99 plus shipping over on Etsy. I had mentioned, oh, gosh, a couple of months ago, I was at a garage sale that was turned into a basement sale, and the basement was full of old, like, mechanical engineering books and old textbooks and math books, and I bought pretty much everything I could get my hands on. I paid a dollar and fifteen cents per book for well over a hundred books. This was one of those, and it was definitely worth picking up. Spring Design and Application by Nicholas Coronas. This was published by McGraw Hill back in 1961. Fully illustrated book on the uh, design and use of springs in manufacturing. Crazy. Hardcover with its dust jacket. Cool illustrations. Neat old book. I own it for a buck fifteen. I had it listed for $84.99 or best offer. I received an offer of $75 for this book. Uh, that's a pretty healthy return on investment. So that's another offer that I accepted. I have talked about these model railroading magazines off and on for the last, gosh, uh, pretty much as long as I've been doing this show. <laughs> uh, and they continue to sell here and there. I'm down to the kind of the last batches of them now, but I had one buyer that bought seven complete years of these. So model railroader magazine from 1996, 98, or I'm sorry, 88, 93, 1980, 1994, 1981, and 19. 85. Uh, these seven years totaled $118.26 plus customer paid shipping. I own each of these years for 96 cents. So I got less than $8 in this thing. And some of these have sold for as much as $30 a year. They're not bringing quite that much money now. These are all on sale because I've had them for so long. But still, this was a really, really nice flip. Again, from essentially a dollar a year to $118.26. So it was a massive two boxes. Total weight was almost 60 pounds. I shipped these things out UPS because <laughs> uh, the last time I tried to ship this many by the post office, it was just entirely too expensive and they damaged the, the items getting them where they needed to go. So I shipped these out UPS in two boxes. These old magazines were, they're very big. They're very heavy. So just be aware of that. And as you should be aware, they're not supposed to ship by media mail. And now your flip of the week. This one took a little while. So I've had this set of books for over a year. Uh, it's a double day encyclopedia from 1931 and 32. It's a second edition complete set of 11 volumes. I picked this up at an estate sale, like I said, a little over a year ago. I paid a dollar a book for these. So I got $11 in this set. They have been here for quite some time. And I had a customer that reached out to me on Etsy a couple of weeks ago, asking some questions about them. Couldn't tell exactly from the picture if they were really dark blue or black, had some questions about their sizes and so on. We went back and forth several times before this customer ultimately decided to purchase these things. It's 11 volumes total. I'm into it for $11, a dollar a book. I had them listed for $229.99. Uh, this person got a 10% off discount because I have the automated, if somebody clicks that they like an item on Etsy, they automatically get a coupon for 10% off. So she saved 10%, but still paid $206 
and 99 cents plus about $35 in shipping uh, for this 11 volume set of the Doubleday Encyclopedia from the early 1930s. That, my friends, is pretty spectacular and is another reminder that you can, in fact, <laughs> uh, you can make money and you can hit some home runs selling books. And I see people posting all the time that there are sellers who say you can't make money selling books. And I'm, I'm here once again to say, yes, you can. It's like any other category. You need to have some idea what it is you're doing, what you're looking for. You need to be able to buy them at the right price and have enough storage capacity to be able to keep a big lot of them on hand because they can be long tail. I've had this item for well over a year. Was it worth hanging on to for a year? I would hazard to say that yes. <laughs> uh, even with the carrying costs of having it in my warehouse already packed and ready to ship for over a year from an, an initial investment of $11 to turn it around for $206.99 plus shipping, I will. I would definitely take that every single time. So again, uh, if you found anything useful or helpful here, please do me a favor if you're watching on YouTube and hit that like button. And as always, I thank each and every one of you uh, for watching and or listening, spending a little bit of time with me mostly each and every week. Uh, I did enjoy having last week off with the holiday. That was pretty awesome. I did do an extra day of sourcing. I drove to Lima, Ohio, which is like two hours each way for me to buy some some books. It was a friends of the library type sale. Uh, I bought a couple of hundred books up there for <laughs> uh, about $45. Uh, I think I've probably got 3500 maybe $4,000 worth of retail books for about 45 bucks. So that's how you make money selling books, my friend. And it was interesting because as I was walking in and I'm, I'm going for stuff like this, stuff like I just showed you, these old books, and I see the guys with their little Bluetooth scanners on their fingers and their phones for Amazon FBA, and they are completely overlooking these uh, what in some cases were 40, 50, 60, 80 dollar books and I get everybody has a different business model. I don't look at contemporary fiction for instance because it doesn't have much value on eBay. They overlook old vintage books because they don't have barcodes and they take more research time and that's just their business model is to turn lower price things more quickly. It just goes to show as I say on this show all the time there is more than one way to make money doing reselling. And despite all the doom and gloom out there, as I mentioned earlier, I still think you can make a viable living doing this with whatever product you choose to sell if you'll put in the time and do it right. So I will get off my soapbox now. Thank you again for watching and listening. And now it's time to sell. Thanks, guys. You have been listening to the Galaxy CD's Rocks and Flips Reseller Talk podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will catch you again next time.